you know, when, when you're seeing what's happening in Portland, you're like, this this can't be right. This this can't be consistent with the first or the fourth or the fifth or the sixth amendments or the eighth amendment. Um, but then you, you turn around, you look at the ACLU lawsuit um, that was filed against the federal government asking for, uh, for, for temporary and permanent relief and them to immediately cease and desist activities in Portland. It's based on the 10th Amendment, not the first, not free speech. These people are doing free speech. It's not based on that, not based on the fourth, which is you shouldn't be wrongfully arrested. It's not based on the fifth, which is your right to a trial. Um, it's not based on, the, uh, on, on, on excessive bails or, 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 or cruel and unusual punishment. It's based on states' rights, which it's really hard to make a meaningful states' rights argument. It's hard to make a good 10th Amendment argument, particularly when what you're trying to do is, is make a civil liberties argument based on the Fourth Amendment, but the Fourth Amendment has been just stripped away so far that there's nothing there of merit to argue. This is the Orientalist Express podcast, episode 27. This is the show that brings together young professionals from all over the world to discuss a variety of topics related to the Middle East, American foreign policy, international relations, and today, domestic politics. The goal of this podcast is to make American foreign policy interesting and easy to understand for those who don't follow it too closely. We are joined today in the virtual studio by Stephen Howard. Hello. And special guest contributor, Grant Miller. Howdy, howdy. So tell us a bit about yourself, Grant. Uh, my name's Grant. Uh, if you see me in real life, you recognize me as being the tall, lanky guy with the mustache. Uh, I am an attorney and a public defender by trade. Uh, licensed here at the Utah State Bar, where I practice here in Salt Lake City. Also licensed with the uh, Federal Bar District of Utah. Um, went to the S.J. Quinney College of Law, where I was president of the Student Bar Association. Uh, currently president-elect of the Young Lawyers Division of the Utah State Bar. See, we have an actual professional on. <laughs> Look at that. I wouldn't go that far, Nick, but I try, I try. All right, so listeners may remember Grant from our episode years back, well into the before times. It was 700 when we years discussed, ago at this point in time. It feels, it, it feels like 700 years ago. Way back when we were discussing the legal implications of the arrest of Trump's personal f- lawyer, former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen. Right, the first of a series so, yeah. of unfortunate events with his lawyers. <laughs> yeah, and, and that, we've come a long way from that. Certainly, certainly. All right. Uh, be sure to check out our official website at orientalistexpress.com to read more about the team. So not much has happened since our previous episode on the global pandemic, uh, except, of course, the widespread protests over the death of George Floyd, which happened 10 miles from my own home, um, and, you know, unknown federal police force abducting people into unmarked vans in Oregon. So with less than 100 days until the general election, it's really anyone's guess how much further this type of thing is going to escalate. And that's why we have our legal expert, Grant, here to talk about a variety of things like the legality of these actions, um, how everything kind of relates to the Bill of Rights, and how you everything you think you know about the Bill of Rights is probably wrong. Um, and so that's why we've also brought on Stephen to help moderate this discussion, because um, Stephen doesn't want to talk about domestic politics, right? I. I, I, I might jump. I might chip in a little bit, but <laughs> it is not my uh, cup of tea. So yeah, I will be. I will be trying to stand out a little bit. That's fair. That's fair. All right. So I guess, Grant, take it away. What are your thoughts? Well, it's it's a unique situation. Um, it's got a wild 
story arc to it. And I, I, I use that expression for lack of, of something better to call it. Um, because these protests have all evolved organically um, and are meaningful. There's a lot of momentum behind what's going on here with the um, with Black Lives Matter and other collateral uh, uh, movements uh, regarding civil rights. Um, the biggest shock that really comes to all of us is when, seemingly out of the blue, the federal government started dispatching federal agents to Portland uh, to intercede in these protests. And, you know, the big question we have, uh, amongst others, is, is that legal? Can they do it? Um, and then, of course, beyond the legal analysis, there's a whole spectrum of political analysis that goes into it. But I'll, I'll do my best to stray away from the political analysis and uh, uh, look strictly at what's happening in Portland under a legal lens. Based on what we're seeing down in Portland, I, I noticed that the most significant uh, commentary from media comes from the fact that these aren't local law enforcement agencies. As a matter of fact, they don't seem to be any particular law enforcement agency. It just seems to be a hodgepodge of different agencies housed within the Department of Homeland Security. Um, these uh, agents and officers are not identifying themselves. They're not wearing a, a, a uniform and they're not driving in marked vehicles, uh, which has caused a lot of people um, uh, an adverse reaction, and, and rightfully so. It is rather ominous when you see law enforcement uh, uh, agencies behave in this particular way, particularly without a meaningful explanation. Um, Leadership in the federal government uh, attached to the Department of Homeland Security has justified uh, the intervention from the, uh, uh, from the federal agents uh, as relating specifically to federal property. Uh, and what they're saying is that the federal courthouse, particularly in Portland, um, has been subject uh, to damage and graffiti uh, and that they need to protect the federal assets. Um, and that is something that they could legally do. One question in this analysis, can, can the federal government even do this? Can the federal government even send out federal agents uh, to get involved in what are more or less local law enforcement issues? And generally speaking, the federal government isn't interested in local uh, law enforcement issues. They leave state law enforcement, county law enforcement agencies to enforce what they would see as the small stuff. You know, your day-to-day -day smash and grabs, your drug crimes, that sort of stuff. The federal government is largely interested in the big picture, big crime sort of stuff. You're talking about cartels, terrorism, uh, um, uh, large amounts of drug and sex trafficking. That's the sort of stuff that grabs the federal uh, uh, government's attention. Usually, crowd management and riot control is not within the purview of the federal government. And so the Tenth Amendment, which we'll come back to later separates powers, separates the federal government from the state government, and that's what really allows state governments and their law enforcement to take care of most of the stuff that uh, we consider to be day-to-day -day crime. Yeah, is, isn't that the one that basically just says, anything that's not in the Bill of Rights here kind of belongs to the states, right? Almost verbatim, you know, anything that's not enumerated in the Constitution, it's up to the states. But there's a big loophole. There's a big loophole in the Constitution which says the federal government has control of anything that has regard to interstate commerce. That's under Article 1, Section 8. 
And what the Supreme Court has determined over the case progeny of the last, you know, two centuries is that just about everything has to do with interstate commerce. It's this idea that the aggregate of just about anything you can do will snowball and somehow affect the economies of other states. Um, and that has enabled Congress to enact any uh, assortment of laws. And, and, and we have so many laws on the books. I mean, I think that we have upwards of 5,000 criminal federal statutes. And to put that into perspective, if you took every federal statute book, so I understand, put them on one shelf, spine to spine, that shelf would last a football field and a half. That's just how many criminal laws you're supposed to know. And if it falls under that purview, any one of those 5,000 criminal laws say, you know, thou shall not graffiti a federal courthouse, well, then it could be subject to federal enforcement. So at the end of the day, on its face, if these federal agents are actually doing what leadership in the government is claiming that they're doing, and that's protecting the courthouse and enforcing arrests based on probable cause of people that are damaging the courthouse, then yes, it is legal. But what remains to be seen is whether or not they are truly act, uh, acting within that limited scope, or whether or not they're escaping that lane and uh, uh, acting on some other political purpose. So I have a question, actually, about that real quick. Uh, yes. You did mention that the DHS is, I mean, they are allowed to go to those federal sites, like the courthouse. But a lot of what we've been seeing is that unmarked van driving up in the middle of the street and camouflaged what looked like paramilitary Argentinian, you know, back in the day, coup troopers, right. just taking a guy and throwing him into a van, driving off, not identifying themselves, no identifying things on the van. Is that legal? Because they're not on the court, or at least from what I was understand, they're not actually on the court premises at that point. Mm -hmm. And it seems like DHS is trying to push their uh, jurisdiction, maybe? I, I don't know. Well, you bring up a really good point there, and in there, there are a couple different concepts. Right off the bat, you mentioned jurisdiction. If you're a federal agent, United States of America is your jurisdiction. You know, people ask me all the time, like, oh, well, you know, I, I live in Salt Lake City, and they're just like, well, there was a there was a, a light rail police officer that arrested me on campus. They can't do that. And they're like, no, a sworn officer within a jurisdiction can act anywhere in that jurisdiction. And federal officers can act anywhere in, uh, in the United States. Now, to get back to your specific question about what really feels like kidnapping, there's one particular video of um, was uh, provided by the National Lawyer Guild, which it, uh, uh, is a national organization that looks to protect the rights of protesters. Um, they filmed a video and handed it over to the uh, uh, Oregon Public Broadcasting, and, and it depicts a person on the street, looks like a, a pretty empty street, and you see a minivan roll up. You see uh, 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 two, you know, commando type individuals hop out of the van, just grab them and throw them in the van and drive away. And uh, it's been a, circulating. It's gone viral because it's very disconcerting. Uh, but going back to your question is, is this legal under the justification that was given by federal leadership? The answer is yes. What they're claiming here is that this particular individual was spotted by one of the officers as being someone who contributed uh, to the vandalism or damage of, of a federal courthouse. And they tracked him down because they had that probable cause that this individual had committed a crime. And once you effect an arrest based on probable cause, you're good. I mean, you don't have to read someone's rights unless you want them to confess against themselves and you're in custody, which doesn't sound like it really happened here. 
Now, what's disconcerting on the back end is that they took him back and then they determined they had the wrong person and did this whole catch and release thing. And, and that's disturbing because that means that they did just grab somebody and said, oopsie, uh, and then let him go. I can't remember if that's the same case as the video or if it was a collateral one. I do know that, that, that both have occurred. I just don't know if it's the same one. But that's the legal justification, the probable cause um, uh, justification that they're targeting specific individuals and following them outside of the protests is the justification for engaging with the crowds in the way that they are and really kind of moving about the city beyond where the the, the federal uh, uh, courthouses and other federal property lie. Right, but don't they need to... Like, they can't just do a catch and release, right? Like, don't they need to actually document the fact that this occurred? Don't they need to say, like, this, you know, that this happened and that we pick this person up on suspicion of whatever and then release this person at this time? I mean, unless you're, you're going to tell me that the police can really just catch and release, which, I mean, at this point, I might not even be that surprised if that is indeed legal. You're supposed to have probable cause. If, if, you're, if you're doing this sort of thing, you're arresting people, you need to have probable cause. Whether or not they have probable cause here, I don't know. Uh, you know, what they're saying in this one instance is that it was a legitimate mistake. We had probable cause. We had identified this person. We were wrong. When an officer is making an arrest, to get probable cause to effect an arrest, I mean, they, they don't need a judge to review it like they do for a warrant. They could, once they see probable cause, they have it. They can affect the arrest. And um, there, there's a public safety uh, reason for that. You know, if, if a cop sees you dragging a dead body through the street, they don't need to call up the judge and say, hey, I think I have probable cause. No, you just you, you go and stop the person with a dead body. That's yeah. the concept. Um, but here it's, uh, you know, it's a bit more interesting because it does feel like they're pushing the envelope uh, of, of what they're allowed to do. That said, I'm a public defender by practice. I, I, I defended a case last year where a woman was, uh, in, in my view, entrapped because she was, you know, enticed to get into a van and then she wasn't allowed to get out of the van and, uh, and, and forced to commit to some things that were illegal. Um, and it was something that I, I, I told the prosecutor, this isn't right, this is entrapment. They told me to go pound sand. I told the judge, this isn't right, this is entrapment. They told me to go pound sand. It took me all the way to a jury to, to finally get that message out. Thankfully, that case resolved in an acquittal, but I guess what I'm trying to say here is that I'm, I'm not astonished by the behavior I'm seeing in Portland on behalf of the government, because it is technically all above board, and it is all technically within rational reason. I think the important thing to document here is that for the first time in a while, this is in the national spotlight, and people are able to see firsthand uh, through the media that's being collected and through the photographs exactly how much of our constitutional rights have been derogated over the, uh, the last few decades and exactly how much hegemony the government has when it comes to law enforcement capacity. Uh, and so I, I think that that really is a silver lining to all the astonishing things that are happening in Portland and in other cities. Uh, hopefully not too many, but uh, the promise is that uh, you know, more of these federal agents are going to be dispatched. Well, then I guess my other question to that is, I, obviously, this, you said this is all above board right now. This is legal, but it, we're seeing a lot of stuff in this administration, which you would say is legal, but it's a normative breach. It is something that we didn't have laws against because it was assumed that there were norms that were going to prevent that from happening in the first place. Is this something where that's the same thing? And should we be worried? Or is this is this above board normatively, too? Has DHS been used like this in the past? 
Well, I mean, the specific question, has DHS been used like this in the past? The, the, the answer is no. Um, uh, th this, is, this is beyond their ordinary duties. Um, like I said, I don't think that they're illegally acting outside of the scope. Um, I think it's ambitious when, uh, you know, the district attorney of, I want to say, Pittsburgh says that he, he would arrest these federal agents if they came to town. I don't understand the legal mechanism in which he's considering doing that. But DHS, like, no, Department of Homeland Security is, is, is mostly focused on matters of, about immigration, you know, and, and I, I think that in the hodgepodge uh, of, of federal agents that are being recruited here, I think there's also some people from the Bureau of Prisons. While agents from the Bureau of Prisons are well-trained, this is really far afield from uh, uh, doing security detail in the uh, federal prison system. Um, this is really far afield from, uh, um, you know, ICE agents that are enforcing the immigration laws. You know, none of this is really consistent uh, with what the assigned duties generally are for the Department of Homeland Security and the other uh, uh, agencies that are involved here. But there, there's nothing saying that they can't do it either. So... You know, you kind of have that double-edged sword. I, I, it harkens back to what you are saying earlier, Stephen, that this administration likes to push the envelope. And he had been talking for a while, in his own mind, wanting to give an assist to cities uh, to quell uh, uh, civil unrest using the Insurrection Act, if I remember correctly. And I think he thought it was too, yeah. too complicated legally to uh, use the Insurrection Act. And so I think that this is his workaround. And it's, it's interesting. It's interesting to see this play out. To get to your other question, Stephen, um, should we be worried? The answer, I don't know. So long that everyone's afforded their due process rights, the answer is no, I'm not worried. I mean, so long at the end of the day, if someone's arrested, but they are, you know, confronted with the crimes against them, they're formally charged through the federal system, which includes an indictment by a grand jury. So long all those steps are achieved and the person's assigned an attorney uh, and they're allowed to be heard regarding release and bail, uh, as long as there's no meaningful habeas corpus violations, for example, uh, that, that, that people are allowed to see, see the judge and due process is still applied, then, then no, I'm not worried. Um, the rest of this is just, you know, a really bizarre sort of, you know, somewhere between political theater and legitimate security concerns. That I don't know. History would have to tell us, you know, but that, that's kind of what I see in it. I don't know if, if you should be concerned. But until the courts uh, are unresponsive, that's when I would make that decision. I mean, I would, I would be a little bit concerned. I mean, just at this point, um, you know, because we didn't think that it would get to this point, right? Uh, like, no. did anyone think a year from now that it would be people getting kidnapped in unmarked vans? But how far are we really from that? Because the only thing that is really stopping that sort of thing is what? Political public pressure? And we thought that there would be some political pressure against something like this. There was a little bit against the Insurrection Act, which is probably the only reason that it wasn't invoked. But I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I don't see people being abducted to black sites necessarily. But are we really that far away from like that happening on a small scale? Like a couple, a couple instances of that sort of thing happening. I mean, I'm just, you know, I don't necessarily think that that's going to happen, but... I'm sure that there's a lot of people who are very concerned that we might not be that far off from something like that on a small scale. Well, I appreciate the, the argument that, uh, you know, our, our democracy and our society and the set of rules that, that govern us all is all very delicate. And, and, and we mustn't use it as a toy, uh, as a plaything. We mustn't use it as a toy. And, and, and we have to be ever vigilant in the way that the government 
is using its power, particularly when it's confronting its own people. Um, notwithstanding, like I said, this, this really isn't any different than what you would see local law enforcement do. I mean, the only really big change here is that we're using federal law, or at least the federal government here is using federal agents. Uh, and they're, they're, they're doing it in a, in a quasi-agency. And, and that, that stuff is really bizarre because it's really out of the lane of, of where they normally operate. But if you look at all these cities uh, and, and the protests and civil unrest that's been happening in all these cities, uh, you still have riot police uh, and other agencies that confront the riots. Now, that's a whole other political discussion, a whole other legal discussion of how well they've actually been doing that and whether or not they've been violating people's rights and enforcing uh, um, uh, civil unrest laws. And you know, I'd, I'd argue in many instances, yes, so there has been a breach of that trust. But it's not like tear gas is a new thing to be using against protesters. It's not like rubber bullets are a new thing to be using against protesters. It's not like these shields and, and, and blocking off roads um, are, are anything new. It's just that it's a new group of guys that are doing it and raising eyebrows as to how they're doing it and why. As I mentioned before, this is all still consistent and legal. Um, you know, it is all very disconcerting. When I began work as a public defender, uh, you know, I, you look behind the curtain, you see everything. That's just nasty, and you're just aghast, and you're just like, how, how can we allow this to exist in our society? Um, you know, that this, 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 this massive government overreach uh, and, and, and gross use of force against people that I saw all the time. Uh, particularly in resisting arrest charges and assault on uh, police officer charges that I just felt were not warranted. Uh, and, and matter of fact, went the other direction. But um, like I said, the big difference now is I think that this is in the spotlight and people are better able to understand exactly what it is their government is doing. Um, I mean, in my mind, I can't imagine anything more politically sloppy than to send federal agents to do uh, crowd control in Portland. I mean, I, I just, I, 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 I can't imagine any any reasonable idea to do that if the city didn't call for the assist other than political posturing. Um, and that's what scares me, is using law enforcement for political purposes. But it's a field from the uh, legal analysis which tells me that, yeah, this is weird, but we're not, we're not there yet. We're not to a point where this is, you know, we got we to gotta start filing writs of habeas corpus because people are being held in black sites. We're not quite there. Uh, it's, it feels close, but it's, it, it's not necessarily different than what we've been seeing, at least since the George Floyd protests regarding local law enforcement agencies doing pretty much the same thing. So I have one more, I guess, I get a uh, turn to that, and that would be, can we look at this as political intimidation as well? Because obviously, as you were saying, the, uh, these federal troops are being used in cities It might be above board. And it sort of is kind of what has been happening since the beginning of the Black Lives Matter protests. But these federal agents are being deployed specifically to cities that Trump doesn't really like. Um, so Portland, uh, I saw just before this, I guess, New York, uh, New York City is now using a couple of these tactics as well. But he's looking at these havens of protest which are cities that usually aren't exactly in his favor and regardless of whether you are afforded due rights you are when you're arrested for a political cause it, it causes a big strain on your uh, psyche just to be pulled into an unmarked van that's got to be really freaking creepy never had it happen hope no hopefully it never will but it, is this a form of political oppression or is that just is that not not a valid argument to this well, I, 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 
as I mentioned on the onset, there's there's definitely a legal side to this, and there's definitely a political side to this. And I think that there's 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 a lot of substance to the argument that this is um, political posturing and maneuvering uh, to, you know, more or less uh, oppress opposing political viewpoints. It, it's certainly possible that that is the case. That said, going back to the legal standpoint of it, if you can find definitive evidence that that was the exact purpose, you know, you find some some Nixon tapes uh, equivalent in the Trump White House about, you know, using using a hodgepodge of different law enforcement agencies to intimidate a, uh, uh, the uh, your, your political opposition, then yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, you, you have an array of, of federal statutes that are violated there, not not to mention the public trust and and um, in the political sloppiness with all of it. Um, but unless you have that, you know, damning affirmative evidence that that is the purpose of it, 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 the courts would assume that the purpose would be security and to uh, uh, secure the courthouses in which they sit and would see a legitimate purpose in maintaining uh, 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 safety and security around courthouses and federal property. Yeah, but even if we had that, that would go over about as well as the transcript, right? <laughs> the Ukraine transcript. Right. It'd be like, yeah, there's hard evidence right here and no one cares. It's not going to matter, but... No, I think, and contrary to like my previous question, which you know, admittedly was a little alarmist, I wanted to to get that out there to reassure people. I do kind of agree with you, Grant, that it is pretty much political theater and political intimidation on some level, um, because it isn't fundamentally different from like you know we had the National Guard here in St. Paul and Minneapolis for about a week. Um, but I think the difference there is, of course, that the governor himself requested those forces who are of Minnesota specifically. So it felt less of a federal um, intervention. But I think why this is so such a big deal now is that we, all of us in general mainstream America, are finally seeing just how little freedom we actually have if the federal government or if any authority actually decides to exercise it. And that, tying this back into like, you know, the George Floyd protests and Black Lives Matter is really what so much of, of America and especially minorities in America have already known for, for years and decades that if a police officer really wants to give you a bad day, there is nothing you can do about it. You, you hit the nail on the head, Nick. Um, like I said earlier, 5,000, upwards of 5,000 federal criminal statutes. You know, when, when, when we think of crimes and we think of things that you should be incarcerated for, I mean, it's like Ten Commandments stuff, you know, thou shall not steal, don't <laughs> kill people. It's not that hard. I mean, like at the end of the day, when I'm dealing with my own cases, they're pretty consistent. I mean, you, you have your assault cases, you have your drug cases, and then a smattering of homicide and sex cases. And, you know, that's what we think of when we think of, ooh, bad people, scary people. Um, we, we don't think of spraying, uh, uh, you know, BLM on a courthouse as being something that, would get you there. Um, you, there, but it does. It does. It does. Um, you know, I, like I said, upwards of five thousand. I mean, ignorance of the law is no excuse. You have five thousand criminal statutes on the books, and you're supposed to know all of them. It's predicted that, or estimated that, the average American may commit up to three felonies a day inadvertently. Oh. And there's a book written about it. It's called Three Felonies a Ooh. Day. Uh, so you're right. If a cop wanted to follow you around and ruin your life, it, it, it doesn't take long. 
Um, I've seen numerous cases where police officers have just followed around my clients, sometimes up to 40 minutes, in one instance up to an hour, looking for a minor uh, traffic violation in which to blow the whistle. And the, the, the pretext doctrine is dead, so they're allowed to do that. Um, I mean, most of the rights that you were taught in your civics class in, um, uh, in middle school or elementary school, I mean, they, they have major caveats. I mean, like double jeopardy, for example. I mean, double jeopardy exists largely in many ways, but is also largely dead. The biggest workaround to double jeopardy is something called the dual sovereignty doctrine, which means if the state fails to uh, successfully prosecute you, the federal government gets to step in and vice versa. And I've dealt with the, I'm dealing with the dual sovereignty doctrine right now because we don't know whether or not this fellow should take a plea and because we don't know if the, the, the federal government's just going to swoop in and then just kick his butt again. Um, it's not the first time I've, I've dealt with it, and there's no real way to, to, to counteract it. I, I, I wrote um, a lengthy essay in law school regarding the uh, dual uh, uh, um, sovereignty doctrine and its derogation on the double jeopardy concept of the Fourth Amendment. Oh, sorry, the Fifth Amendment. Um, yeah, don't get me started on the Fourth Amendment. I mean, like the the the, the no, rights. Do. <laughs> yeah, let's let's. This is one of the things we want you to talk about. Is like, especially in the Bill of Rights, like, what do we actually have anymore? Uh, it, it's it's you know, it's limited. I mean, you're talking about the Fourth Amendment. The Fourth Amendment specifically says, uh, you know, your rights to be safe and your uh, uh, and your effects, your papers, your things. Um, you know, no warrantless searches are allowed. And that was largely respected up until the invention of the automobile. And now the way it pretty much works is that if you're in a car, you have no Fourth Amendment rights, or at least very little. I'd argue very little, um, because if a, if a police officer wants to come to your house and, and, and search your things, if the government wants to go through your things in your home, they need a warrant. But if they pull you over while you're driving around, they don't need a warrant. They just need to, 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 to get probable cause on their own. And, and generally, Which they can just basically say whatever they want. It, it largely really? goes... I mean, functionally, they could. It largely goes unchallenged. So, like, you know, when I have a, a case where there's a search of a car, the, the officer will often say that they smelt something, you know, drugs, uh, burnt or raw marijuana, or, you know, there was some other intervening factor that they saw that gave them probable cause... Um, and often you have no way to really corroborate it. I mean, like, yeah, sure, you know, a lot of cops wear body cameras these days, but it's not like they have, uh, you know, uh, body smellophones that can smell marijuana for you and record that. It, it, you just have to take their word for it. And, of course, you know, I've always likened um, the practice of law, particularly criminal law, to, um, you know, gambling in a casino because you're always playing against the house. You know, the game is typically very much rigged against your favor. Sure, you can win on occasion, but... You know, it, you're in difficult circumstances if you're really hoping to make a difference. Uh, and, you know, you can you can cross-examine police officers if you think they're being dishonest uh, on a particular item all day up and down. But unless you have affirmative evidence to introduce to, to counter the testimony, the judge is going to admit the testimony and usually overrule your, your motions. Even if the officer is known to have lied in the past about... Well, being on the stand, th th that becomes very, there's this, there's this, if you can prove it, well, it, 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 there's something called a Brady violation. Um, and, um, uh, Giglio Brady is, is case law that says, well, if, if a cop did something egregious, um, that affects the, the character and professionalism of the police officer, you're allowed to, uh, have that, have that information for trial at the, at the same time. It is the prosecutor's 
the discretion to disclose that. I mean, I, I've, I've had, um, sorry, Giglio versus the United States, uh, which is also part of the same case series as Brady versus Maryland. And that's why we call it Giglio Brady. It's a combination of those two cases. Now, if, if I'm doing what's called a motion to suppress, which means the cop broke the law here, he broke the Fourth Amendment rights, you should throw out the entire case because, you know, but for him violating your rights, he wouldn't have found this, which is a rule. You, you can't really use Brady evidence for that. I mean, it's, it's typically very limited to the conduct in the specific case as to whether or not it happened and it happened in a specific way. Um, and it, it's hard. Sometimes you have body camera that captures everything. What I've come to discover is, you know, by and large, cops are doing it by the book. I mean, like, I, I don't want this to be a huge cop bashing fest because, you know, it's easy to focus on 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 uh, on the chaos that's happening outside and throw cops under the bus. Like, no, you know, the majority of cops I know do it because this is their way of helping people. They want to get involved in their community. They want to help people. Um, but there, there, there are certain people that are either trained badly or just don't care. And and that's where, you know, jobs like mine become important. But that said, you know, Utah, we, we have a statute that says all law enforcement officers shall wear body cameras. But there's no mechanism to enforce it. If someone in the state of Utah, for example, if a police officer declines to wear a body camera or just turns it off for whatever reason, he thinks that, uh, you know, I don't need to see whatever's happening next. He can do it and there's no repercussion. There are other states where there is some sort of meaningful teeth to the statute, but we, we don't have that here. And a lot of states are similar where they're just, you know, we like having body cameras, but they're expensive and they're difficult to maintain. And, uh, you know, sometimes they protect our cops and sometimes they don't. And uh, for that purpose, we're not really too worried about it until we get better funding and, and, and a better public focus for, for really necessitating it. Uh, makes my job difficult uh, when you don't have evidence. When my client's, you know, insisting that something happened and the police officer is insisting that something else happened, which, believe it or not, happens all the time. But, you know, you have to kind of parse out who's just blowing smoke and who's legitimately telling you the truth. So I guess my question then is I we're talking a lot about how a lot of this is above board, a lot of this is legal, and a lot of this kind of flows from almost normal police practice, it seems like, just being, especially when we go back to the federal government using some of these statutes and some of these laws, it's fairly normal. So is is what we're seeing right now a, a systemic, what, what, are we observing a systemic breakdown or what is a systemic problem or instead is is, are we just heightened to what we're seeing right now? And maybe we're a little bit um, pre-prepped to see things wrong when, because we're looking for things wrong. Well, it, it, it's, it's hard to see the forest and the trees. It's hard to label things as right and wrong when we're in the middle of um, a very meaningful cultural movement in this country. I, I think what's important is to observe this behavior and, and come to a conclusion as a society as to whether or not uh, we're comfortable with it, whether or not this is the sort of behavior that uh, we want to encourage from our police officers and whether or not this is the sort of behavior we want to encourage from the executives that are uh, asking this of police officers. I mean, one thing that uh, if there's any takeaway from this program, from anyone that just feels galvanized from everything that's happening around them, uh, listening to me talk about, you know, yeah, you have your rights, but yeah, uh, you know, you don't really have much of them anymore. If, 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 if that worries you, then get involved. I mean, the beauty of what's been happening is that voices have been heard. Voices have certainly been heard. In, in every city, in every state um, uh, that, that, that has been hosting protests and have been seeing protests that have un gone unabated in many places for the last two months, 
Um, I think the time is to pivot uh, and, and, and force this thing into action. Now's the time to be talking to your local city administrators because that's where the change is going to meaningfully happen, is if we all talk to our local city administrators. They're the ones who are in charge of the police conduct uh, uh, policy manuals. They're the ones in charge of how the police department gets trained, how they recruit police officers, how they develop police officers, and, and how they enforce their own laws, and how they modify their own criminal statutes. It happens at the city level. Uh, to illustrate my point, uh, in Salt Lake City, we had we had you know, wave after wave of protests, and they were very meaningful, and some of them got really intense. I mean, we had one where a police car was lit on fire. There was another one where the district attorney's office was, was, was covered in red paint. All throughout this, I, I, I had consistently been attending the online virtual city council meetings, and literally, I'd, I, I'd be listening to it like in my car, like a podcast. I'd be driving past downtown, see hundreds of people by city hall, you know, protesting over by the courthouse, and literally only 20 people tuned in to the ongoing city council meeting. And this was consistent for weeks, where people are saying, like, we not change, we want change, but the people actually tuning in. I mean, barring one specific day where, you know, community leadership actually encouraged people to call in, all the other days, I mean, they were talking about important things like the police budget and restructuring police activity, and there's 20 people tuned in. And, and, and that's what's got to change. Because if, if you can go to your community councils, you can go to your city councils, I mean, your, your city council representative probably lives right down the street from you. If you email them or you text them or you call them, they're going to get back to you because we, li we all live in small communities at the end of the day. And if you show up to the city council to bring five of your friends, you're going to have a majority voice when you're addressing the council. And that's what really needs to happen. I mean, when you're an administrator of a city uh, or a policymaker, you kind of live in a bubble. And you do the best to make the best decisions you can, and you do the best to get as much input as you can. But you only get the input from the people that bother to give you input. And so my message to the audience of this podcast, as far as it may reach, is bother. Bother. Bother to show up. These days, you don't, you don't even need to go to a place. You don't even need to go to City Hall. You tune in virtually. You, you comment. And, 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 and you write emails. And you, you go down the street. You knock on the door. And you talk to your representative. And I'm not talking congressional representative. I'm not talking your senator. I'm not saying go talk to the President of the United States. Talk to your neighbor that you should already know because he is your direct representative and he controls how your immediate law enforcement agency controls you. And it couldn't be any more simple and beautiful. That's, that's the purpose of a, uh, a democratic republic. Um, but that's what we need to do now. Everyone knows that there's an issue. That voice has been heard. It's time to pivot. It's time for legislative action on the local level. That, 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 that will grow to micro, uh, at least my hope, my, my micro uh, uh, impact. Um, or the micro impact will grow to macro impact in the long run. I mean, change is slow, but it needs it needs to happen locally. So actually, I, I really liked that speech, by the way. You kind of inspired <laughs> me. I'm not going to lie. I, I do me have too. one question to push back on, and that's uh, I've been hearing a lot about a, uh, a, a major block to a lot of this restructuring of police departments is police unions. Mm -hmm. And you see the biggest yeah. example of that in New York City where the police union publicly, they doxed the mayor's daughter after the mayor dared speak against them. Uh, it might be only a problem in major cities with very strong police unions, but is there any legal way to get around that sort of stuff? Or is this, I mean... This is a really interesting concept for me uh, because 
you know, looking at the, the Democratic Party historically, uh, Democratic Party has is, is historically been very pro-union. And I feel like yeah. b- b- between global warming uh, and the shift from, from uh, uh, union organizers uh, supporting uh, people in the coal industry and mining industries and the focus to green energy and the, the sort of uh, uh, a change of focus away from police unions, the Democratic Party is actually in a very different spot when it comes with their relationship to, uh, to unions. And so, so I, I think it's very interesting you bring it up. Um, once again, it's a political issue. When, when it comes down to how unions operate, should they be allowed to be um, politically influential? Should they be allowed to lobby? That, that's a political question. Um, and the laws are, uh, you know, consistently changing in regards to, to unions when it comes to how much authority and power that they have when it comes to relationships with the government. So I, I, I don't know. I, it's not my place to talk about police unions. Uh, police unions... Uh, support police officers and um, you know in, in instances where uh, across the country there's a lot of pressure on district attorney's offices to press charges on police officers like like in cases of Breonna Taylor uh, there was a case locally here as well um, certainly with George Floyd there was a lot of back pressure to arrest the police officers police officers don't make a lot of money uh, and so unions typically step in and, and provide legal defense and I, I think that that, you know, that, for example, is important. I mean, like, uh, you could have a public defender. I'd be happy to, you know, any case I have, I'm going to really fight for. It doesn't matter. Um, but that said, I, I think that some other public defenders out there might grapple with the concept of having to more or less transcend to the other side and, and, and defend uh, the very, you know, very person that they see is uh, perpetuating uh, injustice. Uh, and, I, I you know, I, I think that there's merit in having a union that could support someone who otherwise couldn't afford an attorney in situations like this where you believe that you're acting within uh, the scope of your job under the color of the law and, and, and the district attorney is now saying no. Um, and to have that comfort of additional legal assistance is just one benefit of the unions. But I'm not here to really kind of stand up for the unions. I'm not here to stand up for uh, this concept or that concept of police action. I'm just, you know, trying to give it a fair and balanced shake. I mean, I've I've had a lot of emotional reactions about what's going on with interactions between law enforcement and, and, and protesters. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I got to take a breath and understand that we're all people. Um, and I think that if, uh, at any point uh, through 2020, uh, we've really lost touch with the fact that um, uh, we're struggling with the ability to get along. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's all building up to something. And I hope that we all come out of whatever this movement is, uh, a better and stronger society. But there are some... I mean, I, I, to call it growing pains is an understatement. Uh, we are confronting something that has needed to be confronted a, a, for a while now. Grant, you should run for city council again. Uh, again? I already did that, well, I did yeah, that like six you, uh, months ago. I can't just turn around and do it again. <laughs> just saying. I mean, you, you had some patriotic vibes just welling up in there. It was great. Well, that's, um, uh, that, that, that's what uh, being a trial lawyer will do to you. You just got to... Wrap yourself in the flag in front of the jury box. And, um, no, it, I can hear the Aaron Sorkin music in the background <laughs> slowly starting to... Yeah, 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 something about being proud to be an American. Um, no, but it, it's real because all these concepts that unite us, um, unite us because they're good concepts, because they protect us and, and they allow us to be cohesive and they keep our community safe and, and they, can, they, they can ensure that the average individual knows how their government works. I mean, the average person, I'm sure, won't be able to sit there and rattle off all, all, all 10 
uh, uh, amendments of the Bill of Rights. I mean, I mean there's no person that's going to be, even, even the best constitutional lawyers, I'm sure, would struggle to rattle through all the amendments. Uh, I mean, find me someone on the streets that's going to be able to rattle off all the articles of, uh, of, of the constitutional sections there. And I mean, you're not going to find that, but what is really cool is that you can pull someone off the street and they know the fundamental rules of government. They know something about, I get a right to my religion, I get a right to say what I want, I have a right to own a gun, um, and I have a right to a lawyer, and I don't have to throw myself under a bus if I get arrested. These are concepts that are rattling around in people's minds. They don't fully understand what they are, um, or the scope of them, or how the Supreme Court has altered them over the course uh, of, 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 of this nation and the evolution of the laws. But they know. I mean, find me someone in any other country that, that, that can give you an approximate recitation of the fundamental laws of that country. Um, and I mean, perhaps there are plenty of places where that's possible. But here it's patriotic uh, to, to know your First and Second Amendment rights. I mean, hell, we fight over it all day. Well, which one's more important? I mean, yeah, hell, I mean, I, I say all the constitutional rights are important. Fight for them all. But uh, hell, if you're, if you're stoked... To see people stoked about about law, about statutes, about what they're allowed to have, um, I, I just wish that people were more keenly in tune into what was actually happening because what people think their rights are, you know, when when you're seeing what's happening in Portland, you're like, this this can't be right, this this can't be consistent with the first or the fourth or the fifth or the sixth amendments or the eighth amendment. Um, but then you you turn around, you look at the ACLU lawsuit um, that was filed against the federal government asking for, uh, for, for temporary and permanent relief and them to immediately cease and desist activities in Portland. It's based on the 10th Amendment, not the first, not free speech. These people are doing free speech. It's not based on that, not based on the fourth, which is you shouldn't be wrongfully arrested. It's not based on the fifth, which is your right to a trial. Um, it's not based on, the, uh, on, on, on excessive bails or, 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 or cruel and unusual punishment. It's based on states' rights, which we talked about earlier with the Commerce Clause. Um, it's really hard to make a meaningful states' rights argument. Um, a bunch of states in the South did once in the nineteen or the eighteen hundreds. That did not turn out well. Um, it, it's hard to make a good Tenth Amendment argument, particularly when what you're trying to do is is make a civil liberties argument based on the Fourth Amendment. But the Fourth Amendment has been just stripped away so far that there's nothing there of merit to argue. To your point, Grant, that, yeah, you know, we all know kind of our general fundamental individual rights for the most part, and you're not going to get that in places like, you know, like in China or in Russia where they have this apparatus. What political rights? Exactly. <laughs> well, no, but, you know, because they, they already have all of that, just all of this institutional authoritarianism just in place and it's codified and everyone knows it. But it sounds like what you are alluding to here is that we also kind of have that in some ways institutionalized. We just don't use it, right? Because that's kind of what that sounds to me like what you're saying the federal government is capable of doing if they tried hard enough. Not that they probably would, because, of course, the political pressure would be insane. But, well, you know, similar to how a police officer could give you a bad day if they really wanted to, the government could do a lot of things that they really want to if they really want to. I would say we're there, Nick. I mean, like, I think that it's really easy to say that we're America, we're the greatest country in the world, and we're not like China because they oppress the hell out of their people, they have no rights. 
Um, let, let's have a really honest conversation about what we're seeing in this country. We have two million people in prison. Two million. We carry the lion's share of the world's incarcerated. Um, there, there, there's no excuse for just how many people are living in a cage right now because it, 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 it's exponentially more than any other country in the world, including China. I mean, we, we could sit there and point our fingers at China and say, well, you just arrest people and, and, and you just hold them. But, but, but for us to just, they have a much larger population than us. And, and, and for us to have a much larger incarcerated population than them, to say that this is all absolutely, these people are all heinously violent, which statistically we could show is not true because the vast majority, and I'm talking 70 to 80%, of the incarcerated are in for nonviolent offenses. The majority of those are incarcerated for drug crimes. This goes back to new Jim Crow kind of stuff. This is, you know, using victimless crimes as tools of oppression on the behalf of the government. It's about social control. It's nothing to do with with, with the sort of crime that leads to, uh, to to victimization of people in public safety. I do want to quibble with you about the number of incarcerated <laughs> knew, in knew China. Do this, Steven. Uh, I, there is a there's a large I, and I. I talk about this a lot. There's a large Uyghur community in China, over oh, oh, well, several million people in camps. I already and concede. I already concede that point. And I, I, I didn't mean to. <laughs> no, 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 I, no, 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 no. I, I was well going to go on to say you are completely right about the number of incarcerated in the United States mm-hmm. being absolutely insane. And for insane and just mundane you, I, I wouldn't even call most of them crimes. So yeah, drug offenses, I, I, for the most part. Yes, and I, I do believe that is a huge problem in the United States, that the prison, uh, I, I don't know very much about the prison industrial industry or w- whatever that's supposed to be called, but I do recognize it is probably a problem. And so I, I definitely agree with you there. I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to draw parallels. I mean, I, I think that the way that the Chinese uh, government deals with the Uyghur population is abhorrent. Oh yeah. Uh, notwithstanding, I, I, you know, couldn't. I've dedicated my life to, to defending people in uh, uh, in situations where I, I do believe that there's a there's a good argument to to be said, you know, intentional or not. There's oppression of minority groups and using the oh, yeah. criminal codes as the mechanism. I say intentional or not because I, you know, yeah. I. I work with prosecutors. They're great. They're my friends. Um, a lot of them are my friends. You know, some of them, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, supposedly <laughs> counsel, you have a professional adversary relationship. I mean, I, I, I'm not ready to point at any one of them and say, you're just racist. Yeah. Notwithstanding, I think that the, 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 the word um, or the phrase uh, systemic racism is appropriate because it's the system that gives rise to it. It's not one t- particular mm-hmm. person that's running out there just being racist. If it was, that would be easy to solve for you just take the person out and say, stop being racist. But that's not what's going on because the people here are, that are working for the government are working so in a way that they see as bona fide. They're, 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 they don't, they're not doing it for a racist or, or malevolent purpose. Uh, so you, the, the roots of the problem are far deeper um, and uh, you know, arguably even deeper than, than, than the Uyghur problem in, in China because that's just overt um, versus the American problems are far more complex, I would argue. Yeah, well, and I, I would say that that is the fundamental difference, right? Is one is completely intentional and institutionalized directly from the top, and the other is somewhat less intentional, at least at the individual level, and is basically being implemented from the ground up. I mean, it's individual officers and in putting people in the system that then gives rise to that. It's it's targeted at a specific type of people 
you know, the, the people who are already impoverished, people who are already, um, you know, marginalized. And yes, in a lot of cases, people who are, you know, people of color, minority communities, it's not t directly targeted like the Uyghur one is strictly at these people specifically, but it has the same functional problem at the end of the day where a specific group of people is being disproportionately targeted. It's just it happens to be less intentional in the American model, which is why, yeah, it's harder to get rid of because we can't just, I mean, it'd be easy for China to just, for Xi Jinping to just say, yeah, all right, we're going to stop doing that now. And then it would happen because he owns the Chinese government. But, you know, Trump or Biden couldn't just say, yeah, we're going to stop doing this now. Right. Because it doesn't work that way. Well, it is, as much as you, you hope that they do, and a lot of politicians are saying is we're going to address this. Um, you know, the changes tend to be minor, but that's because you're, 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 you're addressing a system that, that that's so much has happened. Um, you know, for example, since the abolition of slavery, uh, you know, one mechanism to recapture sort of slave labor, if you will, in the South after the 13th Amendment and the abolition of slavery was, well, we can we can suppress constitutional rights if you're charged with a crime. And so they, they would have these, these laws, like, for example, if you don't have a job at the end of the year, that's a crime. And, and then you could, you know, suspend someone's rights if they're convicted of a crime and then sentence them to labor. And, and it's the same concept that, uh, that that still permeates our society today. I mean, how is it that, you know, a, a person who is black in this country a few years ago couldn't vote because they were a slave and then they couldn't vote? because of Jim Crow, and then they couldn't vote for the uh, because of the Klan, and now they can't vote because they're convicted felons, because of targeted drug laws, uh, uh, sometimes of things like as simple as marijuana, which are illegal in a lot of states. Um, and, and to justify suppression of someone's fundamental American rights, like the right to vote, and, and, and the fact that that mechanism still exists, that, that, that social stratification, uh, where the social caste based on race, is, is alive and well, that a person couldn't get a job before because of their race, and that's still true because they're a convicted felon. And, and while it's colorblind on the surface, when you actually begin to study the system, you begin to understand this is what they're talking about when they're talking about systemic racism. This is the racism that's built into the system to maintain that social stratification based on race. Um, and, and, and I think that's really what a lot of the social movement and all the civil unrest and protests since George Floyd really tries to express. Um, a lot of times it's sloppy. I mean, you can run around saying like defund the police. Well, that's kind of hard. I mean, I, I'm a public defender. I don't want to defund the police. I like the police. There are lots of times when I, I do definitely need the police. But to restructure and revamp the systems that are designed to protect us, to help enforce the social contract that we have with the government, um, that's what, 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 what needs to be addressed. Uh, exactly what is causing and maintaining the, 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 the social stratification that is keeping people from advancement. What, what, what is really targeting people to get wind up in a system that they can never get out of that they don't deserve to be in. That's what we have to target. You know, more, yeah. more social workers, more focus on mental health, more focus on uh, drug rehabilitation uh, and decriminalization. I think we're going to do mm -hmm. wonders for us. And I, th I think what gets lost in this conversation is when we talk about systemic racism that kind of, as you were saying, like way back when these, you know, war on drugs and things like that, when these policies were put in place, a lot of it was policies put in place by actual legit racists. 
but they're gone. Right. They've been dead for a while in many cases. But the people who have carried them forward, they've bought into arguments that are on the face of it not racist, right? Right. Because they're like, well, you know, you shouldn't be doing marijuana. It is illegal. And they they don't they don't take the racism with them. They don't realize that that is the origin of it. So that's why they still perpetuate it, not seeing that the origins of it was racist. So to perpetuate it with just a different argument is kind of still perpetuating that sort of racism. So that's just my way of kind of rationalizing that a lot of the people who who ardently support this system and say, oh, it's definitely not racist. I'm not racist for supporting it. Well, no, you're not necessarily racist for supporting it, but understand that the origins of the system is is racist and we can't decouple that just by saying, just by putting a different argument in front of why this behavior is bad and why we should continue the system. Right. I mean, a lot of the discussions I have um, with people are just like, you know, we got to support law enforcement and, and, and the, law, the law officers I know aren't racist. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's definitely true. Um, and this whole thing isn't overt, but, you know, one reason why I don't think we've addressed systemic racism in the current system is because it just gets so easy to label someone as a criminal and just kind of forget about it. Because yeah. when, when you label someone as a criminal, your mind automatically goes to the worst. You think about the bank robbers and, and the gangsters and the mobsters and, you know, the murderers and, you know, any, any, any sort of bad company. And, and uh, you're just like, well, these people deserve it. But, mm-hmm. you know, when you actually you know, work in this industry and you sit down, it's your job to sit down with, you know, who knows, anywhere between 10 and 50 people in a, in a, in a court day um, and, and talk to them about their lives. You know, when most of the stuff is, is, is drug related one way or another and someone's got an apartment uh, and a job and they're incarcerated and they're just you know, like, well, I need to get out because I'm going to lose my apartment and my job and no one's there to feed the cat. And I got the kid. No one's there to pick up the kid from school. And it, it, it's, it's tough. And, and, and people are like, well, why are you a public defender? How can you how can you sleep at night defending these monsters? And I'm just like, <laughs> that's not that's not I don't see my job the same way then, um, because uh it, it is um, the most impressive observation, the true extent of government power. You know, when, when, when you get grabbed, thrown in the back of a squad car, taken down to the station and booked in. Because, like, yeah, you can't go to a job, you're going to get fired. You get fired, you can't pay the rent. Um, and, and then, you know, like, whenever you get released, you go on probation. It's just like, well, you got to get a job and you got to get um, a housing. It's just like, well, I just had these and you just ruined it for me. Um, and the biggest problem about it, you have, you have uh, the, you know, the convicted felon. Box that you have to check when you're looking for all these jobs that probation is requiring you to do. You can't get a job. Well, then you violate probation. You wind up back in. Uh, At the end of the day, you can't get a job anywhere. And what worries me for a lot of my clients is like, I hope you don't make too many friends where you're at because otherwise you're going to just get further and further in that system. What are you going to do when you get released? And what you know is just the drug trade. No one else will hire you. It's really hard to get people on the straight and narrow path when they have been forced into an undercast where no one will associate with them. Where they can't get housing, uh, where you, you anyway. Sorry, I'm on my soapbox, but I'll get off of it. No, that's <laughs> that's I think a, a very excellent point. And one thing that I I kind of wanted to to real quick ask you about is like, so what can someone do? Because I read an article today um, called "The Privilege to Shut Up," <laughs> where I don't know if you've seen this, Grant. Where, but but basically they're talking about you know the advice from lawyers is always don't talk to cops, right? Mm-hmm. Don't talk to cops. But that is kind of a privileged position to have, isn't it? Because if you don't talk to a police officer, 
sure, yeah, you know, you'll you won't incriminate yourself for that sort of thing. Regardless of whether you've committed a crime, it's very easy to incriminate yourself just accidentally. Um, you know, because they can say again, literally whatever they want, you know, like whatever you say can be used against you, that sort of thing. But to be able to say like, well, I'm just going to get my lawyer and that sort of thing, like that's an extremely privileged position because so many people can't afford to get booked and go to the jail and, you know, wait for a lawyer and pay for a lawyer, get a lawyer, and then have someone else pick up their kids from school and, you know, call into their job and say, oh, I can't come in for the next week because I'm going to be booked in a county jail. Like, there's so many, pro there's so many, like, major roadblocks at every step that even if you want to exercise your rights, like, the right to shut the hell up, that's a calculation that maybe you can't necessarily make. Maybe you do just say, well, I guess I'm going to talk to the officer and hope that by admitting that, like, I didn't do anything wrong, that they'll just say, okay, you're good to go, and then you can go. Well, I, I think you bring up a good point. It's an interesting one, and I, I, I do want to take this opportunity to say, like, don't don't construe any of this podcast as to be formal legal advice because, you know, things need to be handled on a case-by-case -case basis, not by... I thought uh, you were supposed to say that at the beginning. <laughs> well, I mean, like, I, I, I really couldn't construe, uh, you know, unless the President of the United States was listening to specifically me on whether or not he could dispatch uh, federal agents into Portland. Um, oh, uh, well, if he listens to this podcast, <laughs> we're going to go crazy viral. Oh, man. <laughs> you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not, we gotta have Trumpy Bear commercials on here. We gotta be sponsored by oh, Trumpy Bear no, or something. Oh, I saw oh, that. God. Uh, uh, but, uh, Me Undies, right? Steven Me Undies is our Me sponsor. Undies. Yeah. Yes. Is it really? No. No. God, oh. no. Yeah, I have my hopes Every up. podcast, yeah. Steven brings up Me Undies. Yeah, I have so. my hopes up. Um, uh, no, I mean, like, it, it, it is an interesting sort of, uh, a question. Like, you know, is it, um, uh, what do you do when a cop wants to talk to you and um, every attorney I ever saw on TV told me to shut up? And uh, I, quite frankly, it, it, it is, I think, far more delicate than that. I mean, I will tell you that generally when one of my clients says, hey, the cop has asked me down to the station, I just say, give me the number of the detective and I'll handle it. Um, because um, I never have. And barring a formal plea agreement, probably never will actually sit down with my client and my detective uh, and, and, and hash a case out because I, I don't see how my, my absent a plea bargain, how, how that statement could in any way, shape or form help my client. Because believe it or not, under the rules of evidence, a statement that your client says that's adverse to their interest is admissible. But anything that your client says to protect their interest is inadmissible. Once again, we're going back to that uh, casino house rules mm. sort of thing. Mm. And yeah. so when the government's looking at my client and says, well, tell us what you did, I I'm not too keen on them just throwing away their Fifth Amendment rights right off the bat. Uh, let's take a look at what's actually happening here and let's handle this professionally um, uh, without having you to just throw away your constitutional rights uh, and, uh, and, and put yourself in, in legal jeopardy uh, where your liberties at stake or, or possibly worse. Um, that said, you know, the people that invoke their right to an attorney, you talk about privilege. I think it was the most underprivileged people that I've seen that invoke it the most. Um, I'd say that uh, the clients I have that have been through the system they are familiar with it, they know damn well that they've raised some hell uh, and have talked to the cops and the cops want to start asking those questions. They just say lawyer. And that's the magic word. Cops are not going to ask you any questions once you say lawyer. Um, doesn't matter that you don't 
have a lawyer. It doesn't matter that you don't have a lawyer on retainer. It's just the magic language. Now, there's case law on this. All you have to do is say, I want to talk to my lawyer. The cops are not allowed to ask you any questions, period. And, and, and they know that that's the magic language. And so, you know, my clients that are underprivileged but have been through the block and, you know, are good jailhouse lawyers themselves know to ask for a lawyer. Uh, now, the folks that are new to the game uh, are intimidated uh, and clearly want to talk mm-hmm. to the police. Now, um, the ultimate question, should you ever talk to the police? I don't know. I mean, I, I've had people just like, like you know, what happens if, if, if I get pulled over? Should I just like, you know, blow the cough up? I'm like, well, if it's a speeding ticket, then, I mean, that's a great way to just, you know, make the cop really agitated, isn't it? If all he wants to do is get your driver's license, you're like, I know my rights. I mean, like, yeah, it's not going to go well. He's probably going to, mm-hmm. it's probably going to be a difficult time. I don't think that, you know, invoking your right to silence every time you see someone with a badge, I, I mean, I, I don't know if that's, if that's prudent. I think that you have to use discretion. I think that you have to be aware of your rights. I, I think that if, if, you know, you have to have your wits about you, if, 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 if they're trying to elicit testimony that's a confession, um, then you should invoke your right to a lawyer and your, your right your right to silence. I, I think that's fair. You have a constitutional right to it. Um, you know, the cops give you a Miranda warning for that purpose. Um, and like I said before, you know, once you start making admissions, cops are allowed to make you, you know, general promises of like, well, I hope this is going to, you know, I, I'm going to make this known to the prosecutor. They'll, they'll help you out. I see that all the time. Um, but at the end of the day, prosecutor's independent, independent agency, uh, independent discretion. Um, has an actual law degree and well, you know, you generally knows the elements of the crimes a little bit better, might just tack on more stuff. I mean, whether or not they're cooperative, it depends mm-hmm. on whether or not the, that prosecutor's got a good relationship with law enforcement. Um, you know, if a detective uh, uh, makes that, that representation, which I, I do think detectives generally do, but whether or not it means anything is another story. I guess at the end of the day, if you get called down to the station, you should, you know, call up your attorney first. Um, and start to start to understand exactly what's what's going on, uh, so that way you can handle it uh, in a way that, that protects your rights, um, that that protects your interests. Um, that said, if it cops up at your window, um, unless you have good reason to invoke the fifth, I, mean, I, I, I don't know why you would just give the driver's license and just handle it that way. But like I said, it really just depends on your situation. And the folks that know to shut up tend to shut up. Uh, other folks, unfortunately, just get intimidated and make. Confessions, but you know a lot in the law enforcement agency uh, or, or profession um, like enforcing the laws and like candor. And uh, you know you're not allowed to lie, really. That's obstruction of justice. But you are allowed to not mm-hmm. say anything, and that is a protection distinctly built into the Fifth Amendment, which you're still allowed to have. I like everything you're saying. I, I agree with basically everything you're saying, but I do want to push back just a bit on that discretion part of it because. That still is kind of a privileged position, isn't it? Because we, generally speaking, trust the system, or at least we did prior to this podcast. Um, (laughs) And so many people, especially people of color, do not trust the system because what they've seen is it doesn't matter what you do or say, something bad is going to happen to you. And so that's I think that's so much of the reason why we see a lot of these situations go so poorly is because there's just no trust there in the first place. And so they look at that and go, why would I even bother with this? Because if I get into a, into a jail cell or if I go downtown, that's it. There's no chance for ever any sort of redemption. And you're telling us that maybe there is, but they don't believe that. So many people don't believe that at all. Like the moment you get into that police officer's car, it's game over. Uh, let, 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 let's be honest about what we're talking about here. I mean, like at, at, at 
at, at the moment that a, a detective is, is trying to elicit a confession or admission out of you, I mean, they, they, they probably already have enough evidence to, to, to send it over to the prosecutor for charges to be filed. Um, usually the, the admissions just cream. I mean, like when I've got a case and there's an admissions game over, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not taking this one to trial. Uh, as a young public defender, I took a lot of them to trial and, and, and go figure. I lost like all of them because uh, you know, of, of the confession, right? I mean, like you, you just don't overcome that kind of evidence. But that said, I mean, like people will be scared. You know, if you're under investigation, of mm -hmm. course you're terrified because you might have good reason to be terrified, you know, rightfully so or not. You might be subject of a criminal investigation. It might be serious. And, uh, you know, not talking to the cop isn't going to get you out of trouble. And I think that that's a big takeaway where people just see, like, you know, the lawyers just be like, oh, don't talk to cops. And it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It just means that you just don't have the damning piece of the puzzle. You still have the rest of the puzzle that you got to deal with if you want to try it. Um, and that's assuming that you want to take yeah. it to trial. I mean, generally, people don't commit crimes uh, with the elements of a crime in mind to figure out if they were caught, whether or not a prosecutor would be able to prove it. That's just not the real world at all. And and for, for attorneys to try to, I mean, you know, back engineer a, a method to, to inoculate people from that. I mean, A, might be unethical, and, and B, it's just unrealistic. Um, and so, I mean, I, I don't know. It's just know your rights. Uh, use discretion. And yes, privilege is a huge part of it. Uh, yes, we have an issue um, uh, with, with oppression mm -hmm. of minority groups, stem uh, and racism. I, I don't have an answer other than, you know, mm -hmm. go to your city council meetings <laughs> and speak up about the behavior of your of, of your of your uh, uh, government agents uh, and, and what, what you're seeing in terms of law and enforcement. Comply with police orders. <laughs> That's a law. You know, even, even if the orders are unlawful themselves, if you don't comply, then you've committed a crime. I've, I've dealt with that a lot. So I did want to wow. bring this. I did want to bring this out just a little bit. I know we're getting pretty far here into time, so I wanted to bring it back a little bit. We've been looking really inwards into the United States, and we've been looking really. We went to kind of a microscopic level to the individual citizen and the individual citizen's right. I guess my last question, outwardly, why does this matter for the United States? Looking out to the world, what the United States, I guess, how it interacts with the world. Why does policing, why do all these, um, all these policing, all these legal matters really matter to the United States and maybe to the person like myself who don't, we don't really focus on domestic politics. We focus on international relations. Why should we really care about what's happening with all this policing? Especially I'm a six foot two white male. I'm never going to be affected by this stuff. <laughs> I got that privilege going for me. Why should I care? Well, oh, I mean, I appreciate that question because there's so many dimensions to it. Um, but but as, as far as the way that our image reflects across the world, I think that's important uh, to observe. You know, it was Ronald Reagan that, that said that the United States is the shining city on the hill. And it really encapsulated something that, uh, you know, a lot of people growing up in, in other countries um, would really see in the promise of America. That's why so many people want to come to America, the place of Hollywood and, 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 and pop music and Coca-Cola and hamburgers. and You know, like you know, the place of beautiful people and, and, and economic prosperity. I mean, you go to America, you could do anything. That's the promise. And then, and then you actually see it happen. I mean, you see people like, like Obama, you know, being raised in a single parent household, you know, not a well-to-do household and making his way as an ethnic minority to Harvard, on Harvard Law Review, to the Senate, to the White House. 
It's a real. It's real. There, there, there is promise to that. But when you shine a light on, on the dirty laundry and you show it to the rest of the world, it, it starts to really wear on our country's reputation. Um, and we start to understand that, you know, our hegemonic rule around the world, whether that be by military or by entertainment or by culture, it's, it's wearing down heavily. And, you know, what we're seeing now is that many other people abroad just don't see the United States as the shining city on the hill. Contrary to that, I think that, you know, many individuals around the world would be very cautious to visit the United States in the future because right now it's the land of a, of a terrible suffocation virus and, and it's a land of, of, of a lot of uh, uh, civil unrest and, um, and, and, and uh, you know, the big controversy over police brutality. Yeah, you don't want to go to a place that has all those bad things that are dominating the news. Um, it, it very much reflects on us. Um, but, you know, as Americans, we, we take our rights very seriously and they're very meaningful uh, to us. And, you know, they're meaningful to people outside of the spectrum because we, we, we were the gold star bearer. We were the standard bearer for, you know, this is how you treat people. This is how you have good, structured, appropriate government. This is how... How, uh, how a society is supposed to function. This is how you administrate good policy. Let, 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 let's, let, let's let the rest of the world copy from our Constitution because it is that good. But remember that the majority of the Constitution refers to rights for criminal defendants. And that's for the exact reason that we're seeing now with the use of government uh, law enforcement officers uh, to, uh, uh, to confront people who are protesting and beyond. Because at the end of the day, the way that you, 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 you remove people from their rights is you, you take them out of their house, you put them in a cage. That's, that's the most extreme power of government. And you look at the Constitution. Well, I mean, the Fourth Amendment's a criminal right. The Fifth Amendment's a criminal right. The Sixth Amendment's a criminal right. The Eighth Amendment's a criminal right. Um, you know, so you have, you have four out of the ten. Um, you know, and arguably the third is a criminal right as well. Um, you know, and, and, and the First Amendment, you know, protecting you from, you know, crimes that can never criminalize free speech, for example, crimes that can never criminalize owning a gun, arguably. Uh, all of these have roots in criminal law, except for, you know, like the Seventh Amendment, which is about lawsuits um, and, uh, you know, perhaps the Ninth and Tenth. But that's why that document is so important. And that's why it focuses so much on, on, on criminal issues is because that's where your liberties are really stem from. That's where the power of the individual can overcome the power of the government on a level playing field. And that's why it's important for the rest of the world that we all model our governments in such a way where the individual has that kind of power to protect themselves and to protect everyone that they love. Um, and when the world sees that fall apart, yeah, that's terrible for everybody. So long answer to a really good question. That's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast. I'd like to thank our guests Stephen and Grant for their insight and analysis, as well as our listeners and readers of the blog. Be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com, like and share on our Facebook page, or tweet us at orientalistexp. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.